All right, welcome back, Munster Week 7. I mentioned two studies ago that this would be the last study. Now, I didn't give a hard promise, so I do have some ability to make this statement, but I'm going to need one more week after this week. I tried to combine the last two or last few events into one study, but it's just not, it's just not going to work. So I need one more. So I hope, I uh, hope that's okay with everyone. Uh, before we start, let it, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for allowing us to gather on this platform to study church history. This is a lesson about scripture. This is a lesson about proper hermeneutics. This is a lesson about how you speak and how you speak clearly and consistently and that we must build upon your revealed word of who you are through your son who has spoken as Hebrews chapter one, one through four says. And if we do not do that, if we venture off and insert our own context, our own culture, our own motives and ideas, our own sinful natures into scripture, we will destroy everything around us. We will convince ourselves of, of lies and distorted realities and find ourselves physically dead eventually and spiritually dead. Let us take what we read as a lesson, hold fast to your word, hold fast to your truth, hold fast to the, the prescribed method of, of sanctification through your church under the uh, rulership of, of qualified elders. And let us be confident and the truth that we have so that we may accurately share the gospel with those who are dead. So you may bring those whom you have chosen to life, back to life. We praise things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, last week we ended with the Anabaptists again defeating the Prince Bishop, routing a massive attacking army. Uh, most of the survivors from this, this August attack abandoned the Prince Bishop's army. The, the will to fight is gone. They've done this twice. One was a bumbling mess in May. And now this one, while, the, while it was organized, there wasn't any drunk soldiers charging a wall. It was still brought with disaster. And like I said, hundreds were killed or wounded. Many of the leaders, officers... I think it was like a hundred officers alone were killed. And this was before you really had non-commissioned officers who could take the place of officers if they're killed in battle. So once you really, once you lose officers, discipline is kind of, is gone. There's, there's no much, there isn't any discipline to have really. So what starts out as a 9,000 man army back in February, 1534, once the, once the siege started after that, the mass exodus from, from Mathis, what starts out as a 9,000-man army, very confident, very you know, boisterous, they're ready to kick these Anabaptists out of Munster, is now down to 3,000. 3,000 men. And these 3,000 men are tasked with cordoning off a three-mile radius of Munster. Even with 9,000 men, that was a difficult task. But 3,000 men, yeah, uh, people are getting in and out really as they, as they wished. And you're going to see as we get into this, it's because actually this defeat that the Prince Bishop has is actually what ends up giving him the city. And you'll see why here in a second. Well, in the study, you'll see why. So the Prince Bishop is licking his wounds. And the new appointed king of Munster, Jan of Leiden, like the new King David, he continues his tyranny inside the walls of Munster. Jan is setting up his new king's court, setting up uh, counselors, and much like uh, you would have seen in, in a kingship of, of Israel in the Old Testament. And much like King David, who had his prophet uh, Nathan, uh, 
King Jan needs to have a prophet as well. And there's going to be a new prophet that en- enters the scene, and his name is Johann. And Johann, Johann has been summoned to prepare the company of Christ for the final return of Christ. From all the distractions of the insurrection from Molenhek, uh, the attacks of the Prince Bishop, the eschatological uh, pronouncements or focus or doctrines have kind of taken, uh, honestly, a backseat. But but the calls for the eschaton have been made new from Johan. And it really comes from a, a reaction by the leadership to kind of quiet the people. The people are, are, even though they've defeated the Prince Bishop twice, but they're tired of fighting. Um, the siege is coming, is coming on a year, close to a year. It's August. Um, and the people are kind of ready for this to be over one way or another. And what Johann initially prophesizes uh, is not exactly what the people had in mind. So they, they just defeated the Prince Bishop. They're very secure behind their walls. They know they can defend Munster. They know they can beat the Prince Bishop inside the safety of Munster. But what Johann prophesizes is that everyone should gather within the cathedral square, only bring what they can take with them, leave everything else at home, bring your weapons, bring and, and, and muster within the cathedral square. He didn't say why everyone was going to gather, but everyone can put two and two together. They knew that, well, are we going to ride out and fight the Prince Bishop one-on-one? Like I said, they're very confident behind their walls, but the people are a little nervous now. If they leave the, their protection and fight on the open field, they know what happened to Jan and Mathis. And uh, I'm sure they, everyone knows what their fate would be. But the time for battle had come. Johan uh, says to the people that it's time for the final battle against Satan and his army. Of course, the Prince Bishop. And as he's talking to the people, Jan of Leiden shows up riding a, a white horse, f- uh, fully decked out in armor, looking like a, a leader of his people. And... He's looking on on the crowd of the people that have shown up, the men and women that have shown up, looking on the crowd of Munster. And instead of what everyone thought would be a, a battle speech, a speech rousing their spirits to fight, Leiden actually says that they're not going to fight after all. Actually, their gathering in the cathedral square was a test a test by God of their will to fight and a will to follow uh, without question the orders of Jan of Leiden. And God was indeed pleased with how the people reacted. And instead of fighting, they are to prepare a feast in their, in their honor, which now everyone's a little confused, right? Uh, everyone's emotionally on a high, ready to fight, probably. And now Jan of Ryden strolls up, full of armor, looking like he's about to fight too. And he says, "Ah, never mind. Let's actually let's let's have a feast instead." So now now everyone's kind of on an emotional roller coaster here. And not only that, but the siege is actually starting to have an effect on the food stores inside of Munster. This is going to be the last feast Munster has. This is going to be it. This is going to be the last large communal gathering meal that they're going to have. But nevertheless, Jan decrees this feast, and the people eat. And they eat all day. It starts, the people are gathered in the cathedral square like in the morning, and Leiden decrees this feast instead of fighting. Um, no relation to fight, laugh, feast. Some will get that. Um, so he makes this decree to feast instead of fight, and it lasts all day. And during the feast, as the festivities are, are ongoing, Johann the prophet is going to make another prophecy. And this prophecy actually will ultimately mark the end of the Munster Rebellion. No one will see it at the time. No one will even think it at the time. But it will. 
And it's, that is, uh, of my opinion, and there's some other scholars that agree with that. Some don't, but. As the feast is going on to the evening, Jan of Leiden's there being very, uh, very, very humble. Uh, he's a humble king at this point. He's, he, he's trying to be likable at this point, probably, especially after all that's happened. But Johann receives the vision from God that the new Zion must send new apostles out into Europe, out into the periphery of Germany and elsewhere of Europe and spread the word and continue fighting the enemy. Emphasis on fighting the enemy. Yeah, they want to spread the Anabaptist word mainly to stir up fighting emotions from the people, the the Anabaptist supporters around Europe to flank the Prince Bishop, at least distract him so those in Munster can break out. Because Johann knows, Jan of Leiden knows, if they're stuck in Munster for another year, uh, it's not good. Like I said, the storehouses are dwindling. Jan of Leiden's crazy and getting crazier, but he's not a fool yet. So, so Johann makes this prophecy, and he writes down 27 names. So now there's, there's 27 apostles, new apostles, that uh, even they would view as have been taught by Christ himself somehow. Uh, so he writes down these names, and during the feast, these 27 men are gathered together. And they're given, they're briefed on their mission. Johann actually names himself as one of the apostles. So he's actually going to be one of the 27 that will ride out to these uh, surrounding areas. <clears throat> and uh, he, he uh, assigns specific cities to different groups. So they'll leave in groups, not one by, you know, not, not one person will go to a town or 27 different areas. They'll actually group together and go to these different cities that Johann assigns them. And he assigns these cities, and the next morning, uh, very quickly, they all leave. These 27 apostles leave Munster because there's no time to waste, obviously. They need to, uh, they need to break out. Um, and they leave in the cover of night. There's only 3,000 men surrounding Munster. It's pretty easy to sneak past them. And they do. They sneak past them, and they go out and, and do their thing. Well, weeks go by. And there's no word, there's no official word from any of the 27 apostles. But there are rumors, there are rumors of the immense success of these apostles. One of the rumors is King Henry, King Henry VIII, has converted and rebaptized himself and has actually recognized Jan of Leiden as the true king. Another rumor is that there's a massive Anabaptist army somewhere in Italy, or near Rome somewhere, massive Anabaptist army, preparing to invade Rome, sack it, and, and unseat the Pope in his position. These are grand rumors, none of which have any foundation in reality. What actually ends up happening, of all the 27 men that are sent out on this mission. Only one survives. The rest are killed quickly and brutally. And it's, you could say there's some, they do some, there's some fruitful things that they do, but for the most part, uh, every single one of them uh, was not, was unfruitful in their mission. I want to focus on one of the groups of the stories, because I mentioned all but one, die right there's only one man that comes back and that's the group we're going to focus on next okay so one of the groups was sent to the city of Austinbrook. it wasn't very far from munster it's like a day's journey most of the cities that these apostles were sent to weren't that far away from munster itself but we're going to focus on one man in particular in the group uh, his name is henry grays henry grays was a schoolmaster and he seemed to be a firm believer in the Anabaptist movement from its inception, really. Ever since Anabaptism arrived in Munster, he's been a firm believer in it, so, so it looked. 
Uh, even though, actually, uh, during the massive book burning with uh, Jan Mathis, he looked on with disgust. He watched the books that he would use to teach the, teach the children turn into ashes, uh, not just a few months ago. But despite that, he still was an, was an ardent, uh, loyal follower of Mathis and Leiden up to this point. He was very enthusiastic about being an apostle, being chosen from Johann to do this, this, this mission. And he really expected the Lord to bring favor upon their journey. All of them did. Uh, most of them, maybe except for Johann, he might have, he know, he, he knew that he was manipulating everyone. And uh, it started easy enough. They got through the Prince Bishop's men, and the group arrives in Austinbrook really the next morning. <clears throat> and they were given information that there was a, a certain man inside of Austinbrook that was a ardent supporter of Anabaptism and would take them in and provide them like a base of operations. And they enter the city and they make contact with this supposed supporter. But as they enter into his home and they, they had like a code word that they would say to each other, and it was, they would give a coin that had uh, Jan of Leiden's face on it. And if they responded a certain way, they would be, uh, they would be uh, sympathetic to the cause. Right. So they give him this coin and he actually denies that he is a Anabaptist supporter. And he gets very upset very quickly. He doesn't want any part of this. And he wants Henry Grays and his company of men to leave his home. And they do. They leave his home, and really they're undeterred by this rejection. They, they kind of nonchalantly make their way down the street into the city square. And once they get to the city square, one of the, one of the, the group members starts preaching. Starts doing his Anabaptist preaching. And... Not soon after, a crowd starts gathering around. Most of the crowd, most in the crowd are Anabaptists, either sympathizers or supporters, which was, which was good, right? That's, that's good for them. Um, but soon after that, a group of soldiers arrive and led by the man that was supposed to be the supporter that they could uh, bunk with. <laughs> so he, he ends up leading a, a soldiers to where they are, points them out, says, there they are. The soldiers arrest them. Henry Grays and the company uh, surrender without incident. They want to show that they're peaceful. They don't want to show uh, that they have any ill intent for the town, so they go They go in peace. The soldiers arrest them and, and bring them to a, a tower prison inside, inside Elsenbrook. And honestly, the guards treat them pretty well. The guards... Most of them are sympathetic to the Anabaptist cause, and they, they they dialogue back and forth. They're you know Henry Gray's and his group are not being are not being uh, um, rebellious or anything. So the guards the guards are treating them with respect too. And really, the the city council is actually starting to become sympathetic to these men, and it actually looks like they're making some headway as they're in prison here. Um, what they didn't know yet, though, is the the man that was supposed to be the supporter that they were supposed to meet, right? Uh, the crowd that gathered to hear the preaching found out that this man had turned them in, where they saw him, they saw him lead the soldiers to arrest them. Well, that crowd actually attacked that man, and he runs for his life, and he runs out of the city. Uh, the crowd, the the crowd runs him out of the city. He he flees, and he flees straight to the Prince Bishop in Alberg. Alberg is where the Prince of Prince Bishop is residing. It's where he's been residing really through this entire siege. He very rarely makes an appearance at the front in Munster, but this man hightails it to Alberg and he's got information. So he knows that Prince Bishop will take him in, even though he's been run out of his own town and Henry Grayson and his company don't know that yet. But it's, it's soon told to them that this man has actually gone to the Prince Bishop. And Grays and Company, sounds like a TV show, uh, Grays and Company. Um, Grays and Company, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about that. Um, know, know what's gonna ha- they know what's going to happen next, right? They know this guy's going to tell 
the Prince Bishop that they're prisoners here and they're going to show up and take custody. And that's exactly what happens. The next morning, Prince Bishop's soldiers show up to the city gate. They demand to be let in to, to see the prisoners. And of course they do. They allow him in. They take Henry and the rest of them in custody. They throw him in a, in this cart that's being towed by a horse and they make the, their way to Alberg where the Prince Bishop was residing. All right, I'm going to stop there. Okay. What happens, what I'm about to, the story I'm about to tell next is from Henry Gray's himself. This is Henry Gray's account of what happens next. Now, by me saying that you might, might be saying to yourself, well, if Henry Gray's has an account of what happens next, was he the one that survives? Is he the one out of the 27 that is, that is, uh, comes back alive? Maybe we'll get there. Right. But this is, this is Henry Gray's account of what happens next. Okay. So they're taken to Alberg, right? They're put in prison and they are brutally tortured. All the company are tortured. Most of the, some of them die during this torture and I'll spare the details of what Gray's describes happens to them, but it's very, it's very gory, very detailed. And over the days, the constant pain of torture and when are we going to die? This, this mind game and in, in Gray's mind wears down his loyalty to the Anabaptist movement, right? He's, he's saying, well, I, I can't take this anymore. And what, what breaks him is when he's, uh, or so he says what breaks him is when he's sitting in his prison cell and he can hear outside the walls the the men building a platform from from which him and his company will be hanged and he just can't mentally take that and and Henry breaks Grace breaks he falls he falls to his knees he falls to the floor and he begs God to save him. He begs God to take away his pain, to take away his, his uh, torture, all that. So he cries out to God. He's laying, he's laying on the floor in his chains, in his chains, sobbing, and an angel appears to him. Now, as I continue, you're going to notice the striking similarities of his story to Peter's story in Acts when he is let out of prison by an angel. And obviously that's on purpose, right? Um, Henry, Henry is, uh, an angel comes to Henry and releases him, releases Henry Graves from his chains. And he carries Henry out of prison. Henry is too weak. He can't walk. So this angel carries him out. Henry actually pleads for the lives of his companions, but the angel reveals that he alone must return to New Zion or Munster. At this point, Henry reports losing consciousness only to awake in a thorn bush outside the gates of Munster. This is the story that Henry Grays is going to tell King Jan of Leiden after being brought back inside the walls. But what really happened? How could Henry be the only one of the 27 left alive? What, what story is actually true? And that's what we'll look at next. All right. So everything reported by Henry Gray's is true and accurate up until the point that they arrive in Alberg. Instead of being thrown into prison and immediately tortured in Alberg, the group is actually brought before the Prince Bishop himself. And the Prince Bishop wants to question them. Henry Gray's, remember, Henry Gray's is a schoolmaster. And he's a very learned man. He is fluent in Latin and as well as some other languages. He's witty. He's quick on his feet. And he knows that the Prince Bishop and his social status, he's the only other one that probably knows Latin fluently. The regular, the average uh, man at this time is not going to know Latin fluently, if at all. And and uh, 
Henry takes a chance. Uh, they're all the group is standing in front of the prince bishop, and Henry whispers in Latin. He whispers this to the prince bishop: "Does the bishop have no power to set a prisoner free?" Prince Bishop takes this as a sign from Henry that maybe he's willing to talk. The prisoners are then, after their question a little bit, just just kind of informally, they're taken to their cells in Alberg. Uh, but instead of being tortured, Henry is summoned by the Prince Bishop, and instead of being treated harshly, he he arrives in front of the Prince Bishop, and in front of him is wine and bread from the Prince Bishop's personal store. And at this point, Henry knows that if he wants to live beyond this point, if he wants to live beyond this last meal, is this going to be a last meal? Or is this going to be the start of, of a new relationship with the Prince Bishop? Well, he knows that he needs to spill his guts if he wants to, to stay alive at this point. And he is already committed to reject the Anabaptist movement. He's, already, he's decided we're not sure when Henry Gray's actually is disillusioned and, and has the, the, uh, the blinders fall off of his eyes where he can finally see but he does, and he he's going to reject the Anabaptist movement, and if he can, bring the rebellion uh, to an end. So he spills his guts. He, he tells the Prince Bishop everything he knows about Munster, and the Prince Bishop sitting there listening to Henry Graves, or Henry Graves, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep. But at the end, Prince Bishop kind of shrugs. He could have gotten all that information from the spies that he has in Munster. And he has spies in Munster. And he, he lets Henry Grays know that. I got spies in Munster. I can get all that info. What else you got? That's not enough. It's not enough. So, like I mentioned, Henry Grays is, is smart. He's witty. He's thinking, what else can I do here? And he offers to be an agent for the Prince Bishop. He offers to go back to Munster and somehow attempt to get close to Jan of Leiden and gather intel and deliver this intel to the Prince Bishop. <clears throat> and like all the plots that I've mentioned or that we've discussed in this story of Munster, everything that we've talked about, this plot is no less audacious and ludicrous as any of the other ones that we've gone through. So here's, here's what Henry pitches to the Prince Bishop. Henry's going to convince Jan of Leiden that everyone else and, and everyone else in Munster, Jan of Leiden's leaders, that he barely escapes with his life from the pinch, from, from Austinbrook only to find his way back to the walls of Munster. And he must've, you know, he must, Henry Gray's obviously must've been convincing enough. The Prince Bishop agrees to this plan and honestly, what does a prince bishop have to lose? Uh, either there's two, there's two alternatives here. Henry Grays can be successful and gather some vital intel and help bring this rebellion to an end. Or the Anabaptists, if they find out he's lying, they're going to torture him just as bad as Prince Bishop would have. Maybe even worse, honestly. So Prince Bishop agrees to this plan. And it's interesting, the Prince Bishop's feelings are very reminiscent of uh, Jan of Leiden's feelings to Hill Fraken uh, when she, she tells of her idea to assassinate the Prince Bishop to Jan of Leiden. Both men had the same, uh, well, I have nothing to lose reaction. It's kind of interesting. All right, so it's, uh, it's now late fall when the formal schoolmaster turned spymaster, Henry Grays, is dropped off in the middle of the night in the near-freezing air around Munster. And he's still in his chains. He's got to make it look good. He's got to you know, look convincing. And Henry, Henry Grays actually expected to, to be noticed shortly after he was dropped off. It's cold outside. 
Um, but he's actually not noticed until the next morning and he's mildly hypothermic and dying. He's actually dying when he's found out by one of the guards in the, in the, in the wall. Well, he's in a tower when he, when he sees Graves. Um, but he's actually close to death and he's brought into Munster. And honestly, that, that probably saved him because even though he was dropped off, he, he, he didn't look like he was tortured or uh, was under any real threat of, of death. Right. But now he actually almost did die and his story is much more believable. So he's brought into Munster, right? Everyone is joyful. One of the apostles has returned. What in the world could he, what news could he tell of his mission around Europe and around Germany? He's given food, he's warmed up, and soon after he's ushered uh, into Jan of Leiden's presence to be questioned by Jan. And, uh, of course, the looming question was, where are the others? Why are you the only one of the 27 to return? And not just return, but there has been no correspondence at all from the other 26. So Henry enters into his character very quickly. And he, narr- he narrates the dramatic escape uh, with the help of the angel out of the Alberg prison. And, uh, and I think it's probably because Gray's actually, actually almost died of hypothermia outside of Munster. But Jan buys a story. And not only buys a story, but he assigns Henry Gray's as, as part of his inner council and lavishes gifts upon Henry Gray's. And what better outcome could you have, right? Henry Grace knows he needs to bring intel to the Prince Bishop. And just like that, after that amazing story, he's brought close to Jan of Leiden. And honestly, who can question, who can question Grace in the story? It is so ludicrous. It is, there's no way to disprove it. Jan of Leiden does this stuff every day. So if Jan is going to question Gray's account, everyone's going to question Jan of Leiden's account and, and anybody else, Johan's account. So even if, even if Jan of Leiden had suspicions of Gray's account of what happened, he couldn't openly do anything about it. And he knew that people were on Gray's side. And so he wanted to, and he wants to be popular with the people, even though he's a tyrant, he still wants approval. So he brings Grays into his inner circle. That's probably more likely what happened. I don't think Jan of Leiden actually, well, he didn't believe probably anything Grays actually said. So while Grays, while Henry Grays is close to Jan of Leiden, he gets wind of a plot uh, that is actually already in motion by Jan of Leiden. Uh, who sent a a member of the Anabaptist party in Munster. He escapes, he gets out of Munster, and he's going around actually trying to muster an army, probably because they hadn't heard from the apostles at all, the 27 apostles. So their Jan of Leiden takes matters in his own hands. And But this guy is actually gaining headway. This guy is actually corresponding back and forth. He's He's building an army. And it looks like if he's successful, he's going to be able to flank the Prince Bishop's army and allow the Anabaptists in Munster to break out. So he learns of this plan. And this is the bombshell that Henry Grazes was after. This was, this was the intel that the Prince Bishop would love. It's going to save his life and hopefully his, his family's life in Munster. He has a wife uh, as well. Um, and, uh, but now he needs to get back out outside the walls, right? He's, he needs to get back outside and tell the Prince Bishop what he knows. So now he's thinking, well, how do I get back outside? Well, easy. If the story of a vision duped those in Munster the first time, why not another one? And lo and behold, Henry gets a vision. Henry Graves gets a vision claim, and it claims, uh, or he claims that he's been told that he needs to scour around Germany and assist in, must, in mustering this army that is to attack the Prince Bishop. That's the vision he receives. Well, Jan of Leiden's like, yeah, great. We need help, man. Uh, here, I'm going to write you a letter. 
and you can you can give this letter to the people around the area and you know this will this will gather support so you Jan of Leiden enthusiastically agrees to this and Henry leaves Henry Grace leaves and goes beelines it to the prince bishop right he goes actually he be, he doesn't even go to the to the the army he just goes straight to Alberg and once he gets there he spills spills the info he has about the planned attack Prince Bishop is appreciative, um, but he doesn't just want to know about the planned attack. He also wants to know what the state of the state of mind is in Munster. What are the, how are the people feeling? What's the, what's the morale like? What are the stockpiles like? And maybe, maybe because Henry was able to contrast life outside of Munster, uh, with the apostles and, uh, uh, um, in Alberg and Ossenbrook. So he's able to contrast normal, normal uh, living with like normal food and people, right. Versus the insanity inside Munster and the deplete, the storehouses depleting. Um, but he contrasts uh, that those two. And he's actually tells the Prince Bishop that the siege is having an effect on the people, a very negative effect. Um, You know, or maybe it was the, the shortage of supplies that he saw, that Gray saw once when, when he was inside Munster. And, but he could see it weighing heavily on the citizens in Munster. Wood, wood that would have been used for heating, we're getting into the wintertime now, wood that would have been used for heating inside of Munster was used to repair the walls after the two assaults by the Prince Bishop. So there was really no, there's no fuel left to heat, to keep anyone warm. Um, Not only that, but meat is running low. I think at this point there's only like 300 head of cattle left. Um, When the siege started, they had like at least 120 war horses. They were starting to eat the horses. Uh, The grain that they had left was could only hold them over for like another month. I mentioned the communal meals had ceased. Those were a big morale booster for the people and they are in their homes told to find whatever they could to eat. And now all they could really find are the mice or rats running around. Um, So there's a sense of doom that was laying on the people kind of like a, like a thin sheet, right? Draped over the people of Munster and, and they walked around almost like kind of zombies. They're, they're in the middle of, of two oppressors, right? The Prince Bishop and Jan of Leiden and two desperate oppressors. Prince Bishop's starting to get, you know, he's been desperate since the beginning, honestly. And, and uh, Jan of Leiden is starting to become desperate because food's running out and, you know, he's got to care for all his people, which are still in the thousands. So Henry Grays gives us info to the Prince Bishop. And that actually encourages him, the Prince Bishop, to actually just wait Munster out. Now he's just, instead of attacking again, he's not going to do that again. If they're already starved, if they're getting close to starving, well, why not just wait till they're dying and... Prince Bishop can just walk in the gates unopposed, not lose another man. So time went on from this point, and once March comes around, um, Jan had made a promise. So it's March, right? When when there is that large feast earlier at the beginning of this lesson, large feast instead of fighting. So the feast instead of fighting. Jan had made a promise. Jan of Leiden had made a promise that the city would be free by Easter. Well, now it's March. It's the end of March. It's almost Good Friday. And finally, Good Friday comes around. And everyone's looking 
at Jan of Leiden, like, dude, you, uh, you said your life would be forfeit if you, if the city wasn't free. So not only did Jan just promise that the city would be free by Easter, if it wasn't, Jan of Leiden said his life was forfeit. <laughs> so now other people are like, what are you going to do, Jan of Leiden? He, he cornered himself, just like Mathis did, when he brought a death sentence on Russia when he was not prepared to do it. And Leiden's done the same thing. The difference between Leiden and Mathis is Leiden is much more able to think himself or think outside the box and uh, turn things around a little bit better than Mathis. So on Good Friday, Jan of uh, Leiden receives a vision. Who would have thought that? Who would have thought he would have received a vision? He, the vision, or God tells him that Leiden was actually confused. God's decree wasn't that the city would be free by Easter, but the souls of those in Munster would be free by Easter. And that's what Jan declares, that their souls are free. Free, free from what? Uh, nobody knows. He doesn't say free from what. But they're free. Your souls are free. He, he, he is arguing that his, their souls are free, no questions asked. And because Jan uh, made a mistake of thinking that God was talking about Munster, not their souls, that there was no need for Jan to give up his life since their souls are free now uh, on Easter. And uh, actually, he even makes a law outlawing his own death. <laughs> so he wants to make sure that no one's going to kill him. So he makes a law. Uh, not to kill him, for no one to kill him. Uh, at the same time, as as Jan is uh, making this making this vision pronouncement, Henry Gray's actually decides to out himself as a traitor, as a turncoat to the Anabaptists. At some point, there's no documentation of when he does it. There's only documentation of when the people in Munster hear about the letter. Uh, Henry Gray's and the and the dark of night walks up to one of the city gates and nails a letter to the door and the guards in the morning find it and they read it. And it is a scathing letter against the leaders in Munster and the followers in Munster. He condemns, he condemns them for their wickedness and he accuses them of being poor, stupid fools. The letter, you can actually look up the letter. It's, it's not that long, but, um, now I, I won't read it. And just so everyone would know that it was actually Gray's and not someone uh, pretending to be Gray's, he he signs the letter with his signet ring. So there's no doubt of its authenticity. Of course, Jan gets hold of this and he erupts in a fury. And now he's aware that there are turncoats all around him, traitors everywhere. And he's going to start bringing down the hammer on anyone, anyone who he thinks or is outed as a traitor. So word of, of Henry Gray's letter spreads, and it's going to inspire others to follow Gray's example. Uh, most notably, Henry Gresbeck. Has, at, at, at some point, again, Many people, because of starvation, because of Jan's tyranny, they're they're starting to not believe in the Anabaptist cause. They everyone's starting to realize that this is going to probably end in their death, and many are trying to come up with plans to get out of the city. And Henry Gresbeck is one of these men trying to do that. So he's at some point has seen the error uh, error of his ways. And he starts planning his own departure from Munster. While this is happening, while he's planning his departure, and we'll get back to, to why his, his planning is important. But uh, in the meantime, heads are rolling. Jan is executing almost anyone that even looks like they're going to uh, uh, rebel against his authority. And he's looking, he's, he's searching for traitors, right? He's searching for traitors. Anyone who is found to aid in a bed, anyone that's trying to flee the city or sabotaging the, the, the sparse uh, stockpiles left in Munster are immediately killed. 
uh, a good example, there's a man named uh, Tall Albert. Um, that's just what they called him, Tall Albert. And he was in charge of the cattle. And he knew that Munster was doomed, and he wanted to get out. So he, he concocted a plan where he was going to drive the cattle into the Prince Bishop's army for them to capture. But somebody ratted him out. Someone got wind of his plan, turns him in, and Jan of Leiden himself beheads this man, has this man uh, killed. And, and all this uh, insanity going on right now, Henry Gray's wife is killed, uh, not even for the betrayal of Henry Gray. She's killed for something else. And Leiden is getting desperate. Jan of Leiden is getting desperate. He's trying to figure out who's against him. And he's trying to hold on to his, his, his rule as tightly as he can. <clears throat> and as Jan of Leiden is getting desperate, the Prince Bishop is also getting desperate. He, he, he's taking the idea that he's going to starve Munster out, but he has the weight of the Holy Roman Empire on his shoulders at this point. Everyone around him is so sick of Munster. They just want it to end. They want to throw everything they can at Munster to, st- to end it. Uh, and, and the Prince Bishop is feeling the weight of, of this. Charles, the, Charles V, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, is, is bearing down on him. He's got debts he has to pay from, from uh, Mary of Burgundy and other, other leaders around. And he, he's starting to rethink this idea of, of waiting them out, but he's starting to get desperate too. So it's May now. So we're, we're in spring, it's May, and starvation is really starting to take its toll inside of Munster. And while the executions before this were for finding out traitors or people that are trying to sabotage Munster, the executions from this point on, from May on, are going to be from our people stealing food, trying to survive. The worst atrocity being the hanging of a 10-year-old boy because he stole apples. This, this is the kind of things that are happening in Munster. If, if anyone's accused of stealing anything, they're just killed immediately. There's not a trial. There's no time for a trial. Who cares? If you're accused, you're murdered. And you, you remember uh, in the early, the early lessons when we talk about this, uh, this apostolic commune, right? This idea that everyone shares everything. You don't own anything and everyone gets what they need, right? Well, at this point, that is gone. That is gone. The people are starving, but Jan and his, his royal court are still dining in luxury. Everything that is stored that is of value is under the control of Jan. And it, this is the, the way that always goes. It always goes that way. Anything outside of biblical justice, anything outside of biblical justice will be morphed and manipulated until the true intent of man's heart finally comes to light, which is complete control of power, of comfort, of, uh, of goods, of everything. That's, eventually, it, that will come out. It'll look all uh, high and mighty. I can't believe it's, that's a lame way to say that. Uh, it will look like a, a uh, endeavor worth following at first, right? Oh, everyone should get what they want. And it was followed that way at first. But now it's come down to where it always comes down to, where the, the Jan of Leiden hoards everything while everyone else starves to death. At this point, all the cattle are eaten. All the horses are eaten. Every part of the horse, every part of an animal is eaten. The inside, everything is eaten. I mentioned people are resorting to catching rats and boiling rats and frying rats and stuff. People start eating bark from trees and grass uh, just to try to get some, some calories. And at the end, even dry cow dung is on, is on the menu. And at the very end, People start eating each other. Cannibalism takes over in Munster. As, as Jan of Leiden is executing 
his citizens for thievery, for any type of thievery. In his dissolution, he decides to divide up the territories of Germany to his closest followers. Um, and this is actually very reminiscent of like Hitler at the end of World War II when he's, he's commanding these imaginary armies to fight back the Russians and the Americans. And their generals are, his generals are standing around him looking at him like, what are you, there is no army. There are no armies left. They're all dead. This is kind of the same thing. Jan of Leiden is divvying up these territories to his, to his followers, but his followers are like, with what? How are we going to take over? How are we going to get out of, of the of Munster? It's, it's as close to being over as it ever has been. All the rationality from Jan of Leiden has been purged at this point. He did know, however, he did know that he needs to get rid of as of as many living in Munster as he can. And before anyone, anyone caught escaping Munster was put to death, right? Well, overnight, Jan of Leiden decides, well, the only way we can get people out is if we allow them the option to leave. And that's what Jan does. Jan makes a, a, a decree that anyone that wants to leave can, but if you do, you can never return. And it doesn't matter what the Prince Bishop does to you. If you leave Munster, you're on your own. And despite that, hundreds leave. Hundreds start leaving Munster. And they, they honestly don't care what the Prince Bishop does to them because they know what will happen to them if they stay inside Munster. And what did they have to lose? What did they have to lose? All right, that's where we're going to stop this week. Next week is going to be the finale of Munster, the Munster series. We're going to look at what the Prince Bishop will do to these refugees now and the desperation of the Prince Bishop, what, what, it, what he ends up doing because of that desperation. And then we'll look at Henry Gresbeck and his decision to leave Munster as being the final nail in the, co- in the coffin of this rebellion. So let's end in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for allowing us to listen this evening. Let us take what, what we've heard. Let us preach the gospel to the world. Let us preach truth into the darkness. Let us, uh, let us, uh, let the church be the beacon on the hill, shining light into, uh, into a dark world. And let us be bold to share the gospel and let us be bold to speak against those that would manipulate your word and furtherance of their evil desires and their will to, to dominate. And, uh, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.